This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I will be your host today. Joining me is Will Bushman. Back again. Back again, and we are diving into episode eight of our 10-part series uh, that's answering the question, America, how did we get here? And so today we are going to focus in on kind of the origins of modern education. We're going to be looking at a guy named Dewey. And uh, some of the things that were coming out of the earliest teachers' colleges that were around that kind of frame where we come today. And I will tell you that when I first started looking at this, it was kind of shocking, Will. Yeah, it's, it's not good. <laughs> it really was kind of shocking. Like, I was like, whoa, this happened? This was allowed to happen? We were good with this? Uh, which is really kind of stunning and so let's just start i want to kind of review who we are as a nation okay like go back to where we were in the first couple of episodes and just remind everybody like we talked about how education had come through this very very christian lens going back all the way to like the mayflower period you know massachusetts bay colony all the earliest universities everything was so thoroughly saturated in the christian idea And so when the founders came, we've been focusing, there's more than this, but we've been focusing on four key principles of the American founding. And so the first one, we had the acronym RAIL, R-A-I-L. And the first one is religion was kind of like a big deal to the founders. You know, our rights come from God, not from government. The, The declaration says that we're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. The Constitution says that the whole point of government is simply to secure the blessings of liberty, not to grant them. And because if government grants liberty, they can take them away. And so that was number one, religion. Number two was this idea that we have a an absolute view of morality, that there is a higher system of morality that comes from a higher voice. It's not dependent on the whims of culture or human opinions. Like there are moral absolutes and the citizenry must be a virtuous people. And so if you ever find that the nation is abandoning that kind of moral absolute, like we saw in slavery, it will rip the nation apart, right? And so moral absolutes are essential. Virtue is essential. Three, so we get to I, individual rights. The individual must be protected from the collective. Like we were... We were going to become like we're a democratic republic. We have elections, we we all that stuff. So there's parts of democracy that we like, but the founders also understood that if you empower the mob, you end up with really awful things like you would see in, in the French Revolution. Like so the idea is we are going to establish a government that protects the individual from the mob, right? And so that's I mean, the entire Bill of Rights is guaranteeing individual rights. You have an ability to speak. You have a right to life and liberty and property and to write what you want and to say what you want and to believe what you want. 
and no collective group from the government can come and say, well, we believe as a society we should be this and therefore we're requiring you to give up your individual rights. Like that was just, that, that would be antithetical to the whole idea of America. And then finally, limited government. If you're going to have individual rights or any hope of preserving individual rights, you have to wrap up and restrain that Leviathan that Hobbes talked about. You can't let that thing loose because if government gets any inkling of power, it'll start abusing. And so they put checks and balances on government, separation of powers, term limits and elections, and they deferred tons of powers to the states because they did not want the federal government to step in and override the individual or the localities. And so that's where we are, and that's going to be important to remember as because we as we have the conversation about where we're going in the education system, it's kind of like I want you to see the stark contrast again. And it's, you know, we've used the expression before, but it's it's kind of like a revolution without a shot ever being fired that that the nation starts going through. And so just as a quick review of the different the cocktail of circumstances that are going on when when Dewey comes around and, and Columbia's Teachers College. In the 1840s, you have the common school movement. You remember Horace Mann comes along and he wants, you know, he wants each state to have schools that are public. He wants to make uh, attendance compulsory. So in the 1850s, that comes along. In the 1860s, you have the public land grant. And so all the universities start becoming public, but with the promise that they're never going to be corrupted, that they're going to remain Christian, that they're going to be devoted to the ethics of our founding fathers. Well, Karl Marx comes and he writes a book that starts spreading all over the world in the second half of the 19th century. And Darwin writes a couple of books that are massively influential and rocks the faith of the people. And so together, those two theories begin serving as a catalyst that send the world on this crash course that's going to result in like outrageous misery and mass genocides, millions of people dead. And so meanwhile, in the middle of all that, the church has caught flat-footed. And so we talked about this last week, how you know it's struggling to navigate the implications of Darwin and industrialization and all the stuff, the international popularity of socialism and and the calls to unleash the Leviathan for the sake of social project. And so the church goes into a civil war. The, you know, the nation had just finished a civil war. Now the church is going into a civil war between the modernists and the fundamentalists, those who believe that you know, the Bible is whatever you want it to say, you know, and those who say, no, the Bible is authoritative, inspired, and inerrant. And so this battle goes on between them up until the 20s, really. And in the 20s, it's very clear the conservatives lose. I mean, even, even the, the denominations that had been conservative walk away from the fundamentalist positions, all the seminaries go in the modernist direction, and the conservatives are forced to splinter away and form their own denominations and their own seminaries, but they lose their influence largely come the early 20th century. And so in that void, we need a new worldview. And that's where the real battle for the soul of America begins to take place is in the early 1900s. Yeah, I think the interesting part about this whole conversation, even as we've kind of uncovered this over the last couple episodes, over the last few hours, is even in my own mind, how Darwinian ideas even sunk in. Because mm-hmm. like, if you ask me what's the problem with 2023, I would not go back to the 1800s. But no. I would not go back to a guy like Karl Marx or Darwin, but that's the whole idea of what Darwin was saying. Like, I had this 
pride that if each generation's getting better, then, oh, our issues couldn't be from way back then, which is kind of scary because it's been going for hundreds of years to get to this point. Yeah, I re- when I was going through seminary, I remember the first time that this had ever been proposed to my brain. You know, I'd been through college, I'd been through primary, secondary schools, but the way that it was presented to me, and there was still so much more to learn even after seminary, like it, that this all going back throughout all of history, there's been this great conversation in humanity. And, and it's like these ideas begin to compete for primacy and supremacy throughout ideas. And one idea builds on top of another, and this philosopher steals from that philosopher. And so all of this, these individual, these really brilliant voices, and some of them are, are really benign, and some of them are outrageously malicious, they're all building on top of one another. And so you can't look at your current situation, I'm learning, <laughs> without seeing this, you know, collage of voices that have spoken into the current cultural moment in the past. But when you can see the arguments and you can identify the arguments and where they come from and you understand what they've produced throughout history, it's so much easier to then grapple with it and say, wow, that is straight out of Darwin. That is straight out of Marx. And so, you know, you know, you see what Marx has produced, you know, some of the things to be cautious about when it comes to Marx, or you see what Rousseau produced in the French Revolution, you know, to be very cautious when you're dealing with these, because they're like these volatile elements that when you begin to play with them, oh, they look kind of neat and oh, they're glowing. And then they blow up in your (laughs) face, you know, and that's, that's the way this all works. So it's really important to understand who we've been to be able to fight well and wisely for where we're going. Yeah, that's the purpose of all these episodes, right? That's it. Just to be able to, like, in this current moment, like, let's identify the problem truly. That's right. Not just the outcomes and everything, but, like, okay, let's look back through history and see. And and so it's been great to kind of get that back education of it, to have the the labels and the ideas and be Mm -hmm. like, oh, wait, this goes into this box, and this box as a whole doesn't, Lead, lead us to a great direction. Yeah, and this is like this is like 20,000 foot. You know, you can dive further into it. I mean, the whole purpose of this is not to depress you, you know? <laughs> even though, but it's to give you categories. It's so that you understand your ideological enemy. You understand the, the ideas out there that are hostile and toxic to society. Ideas that I don't want my kids growing up in a world where these ideas are prevalent that run the show. And so as, as somebody who wants the peace of the city, as the Bible talks about, that wants to bring the truth of God to, to bear on society, because I believe it's best not only for my people, but for everybody, we have an obligation to fight for truth and justice and peace of the city. All right, so let's jump in. So in the void of authentic Christianity, atheistic humanism and Marxism comes and, and fills that void. And so you see all the structures of government-run education that are in place. You've got the weakened influence of the church. And so you get people that are looking and saying, there's no, there's no prophetic voice that's, that's you know, preaching truth to culture. So there's a void well, let's fill it. And so they seize an opportunity to shape the nation for generations to come by seizing control of education. It's plain and simple. 
1887, there's a philanthropist, and by all by everything I can find, she seems like a really wonderful lady, Grace Hoadley Dodge, who works with a couple of major philanthropists back in the day, guys like Carnegie and Rockefeller, to help to fund the first teacher's college in the country, which is interesting that nobody has thought to build a teacher's college until now. Why not? I have no idea. It seems important. It is, but that's because education was seen as a local thing. You mm-hmm. find the smart people, you put them in. And so now that it's kind of like blanketed and, and it's a massive institution in the nation, it's like, well, we need to start training up these teachers. Because before that, it was like, find somebody who's really capable, really smart, and make them a teacher. You know, it, it wasn't standardized and uniform like like it would become. And so to date... Columbia University remains the largest graduate school for education in the United States. It was the first, and it remains the largest. And that's bad news. That's going to be bad you'll news, find I, I think. I think you'll, you'll agree with me, probably. Uh, so prior to this point, colleges don't have departments of education for training up teachers. So this is this incredible opportunity for people to step in and train up people who are going to train up the children. And so, I mean, it's brilliant. If you want to advance, and, and back then, if you wanted to advance your, yourself as an administrator of a school or an educator, there was, there was one shop. You know, it was Columbia. So if you wanted higher education in the realm of education, you went to Columbia because it was the only game in town. And others like the University of Chicago will come along and Harvard in 1920. And others will begin to add these departments. But out of the gates... It is influencing everything, and because it's the only shop in town, when Harvard begins to launch its education departments, and others guess guess where they're going to hire, they're, they're hiring Columbia grads that have a particular education. So the spillover is pretty amazing. So the first president of Columbia's Teachers College is a guy named Nicholas Murray Butler. He's not the main character of the story. I just find this fascinating. So he helped to fund the school along with Rockefeller and Carnegie, he's trained in Berlin. Now, if you remember our last episode, Berlin is where all the theological liberalism really started. The father of modern theological liberalism founds his school in Berlin. This is where Butler goes to learn his stuff, and he gets a radicalized education. In fact, when he comes back, he's openly affiliated with the Nazi party later on. So, like, we got that going for us. That's good. <laughs> Which, by the way, Nazis are national socialists. That's what that abbreviated name stands for, national socialist. And so he's a vocal supporter of fascism that he saw in Germany and Italy. He's openly anti-Semitic, and yet the guy's winning Nobel Peace Prizes. Like, <sighs> figure that out. A good Nazi anti-Semite winning Nobel Peace Prizes is wild. And he even served as a vice presidential candidate in 1912. So it's like these aren't fringe people is what I'm trying to say to you. Like he's winning Nobel Peace Prizes. Everybody's looking at him like, oh, he must be. He's wonderful. Let's go to his college. So anyway, in the early 1900s, Columbia becomes this hotbed for revolutionary thinkers. In 1904, Columbia recruits a philosophy professor from the University of Chicago, his name's going to be familiar to you, John Dewey. Where what Dewey Decimal System? That's it. Everybody like, if, especially if you remember libraries where there were actual physical books, <laughs> and you needed to find a book. Like the Dewey Decimal System was the deal. Well, that's that's coming from him. 
And he remained at Columbia from, from 1904. He taught at their College of Philosophy and at the Teachers College, and he kind of makes Columbia. He's the face and the name of Columbia's Teachers College. He stays there till 1930. And so he's a truly a well-known national figure. He's the president of the American Philosophic Association. He's the president of the American Humanist Association. He helped Roger Baldwin, who was a self-described communist. That'll give you some insight into where we're going with Dewey, to found the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, back in 1920. But before way more than anything else, any of his other roles, his role at Columbia's Teachers College made him a historical figure. And so if Noah Webster was the father of American education today, Dewey is known as the father of modern education. And he wasn't just influential on American education, like his books, Democracy and Education, was translated into Russian, Chinese, German, Italian, Spanish, Hebrew, Japanese, Swedish, Arabic, Persian, Serbo-Croatian, Turkish. Like you see this guy's tremendously influential, but let's pause for a moment. And it's like, okay, why are you talking to me about Dewey? Yeah. Because it's not just, you know, his theories of having, you know, hands-on experimental education where kids are kind of learning through exper experimentation and stuff like that, which is wonderful. Like that, that side of Dewey's great. I love it. But Dewey is a socialist. Like he would be called what was a Fabian socialist coming out of uh, the British side of socialism. And so what he believed was he didn't want a Bolshevik revolution where you take up guns and kill people and overthrow government. He believed in transforming America's free market economy into a socialist economy through a process of educational revolution and, and to democratically bring about socialism. And so what better place to be than training people to train people? Yeah, he's pretty ingenious. Oh, it's, it's brilliant. Because he's looking for the slow crawl to socialism, and he says, okay, what's the best way to do this? It's via our children, so what's the best way to control what the children are taught to control what the teachers are taught? And what they will be teaching, he was the top dog doing that. That's correct. That's Which correct. is wild. And, he's, and he, he says it. Like, I mean, you read his writings. Uh, like, uh, here's a quote. I believe it is the business of everyone interested in education to insist upon the school as the primary and most effective instrument of social progress. So notice, not math, not science, yeah. not literacy. We, we can look at the numbers today and find that out. But social progress, like that's what the schools are there for. Primary and most effective instrument of social progress. And so Dewey is enamored with Marxism. Like in 1928, 11 years after Lenin leads the bloody Bolshevik revolution and brings communism to Russia, Dewey's like, ooh, I want to go see. <laughs> so he, you know, he goes over to Russia and you know he's, he's hobnobbing with Stalin to see how the communist Soviet education system is going. Like these are guys that are going to impose, you know, Lenin has 6 million deaths on his hand. Stalin has 20 million deaths on his hands, brutal dictatorship. And they're like, let's go check out their schools. We, we want to learn from them. And so they explore, you know, all the stuff about Soviet ideas. And so after the trip, I look, this is just like, it's, comical that this guy's the father of American modern American education but after the trip so he's hobnominate with all these Soviets one Soviet educator who's who's you know relatively famous Albert P 
Pinkervich says this about Dewey when he's comparing Dewey to German educators of the day, you know, the birthplace of Marxism. He says, Dewey, he comes infinitely closer to Marx and the Russian communist versus the Germans. So like his ideas that he's talking about with these, you know, Soviet counterparts are very communist. And so that when he comes back that very same year, He's named the honorary lifetime president of the National Education Association. That's, that is the nation's largest teachers union, if you don't know that. So we're looking good, right? Yeah. Field trips <laughs> great, to Russia. Great job. Awards. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Lenin, Stalin. All right. Would you like to be our president for the rest of your life? So, and Dewey's writings make it clear that he wants to take the American economy and the means of production out of the hands of the individual and put it into the hands of the state, which is basically, I mean, it's straight up Marxism. And I'm going to read you a direct quote here. He says, the ends which liberalism has always professed can be attained only as, hear this, control of the means of production and distribution is taken out of the hand of the individual who exercises powers created socially for narrow individual interest. In other words, he wants to take economic engines out of the hands of the individual and give it to the state. Like that's the, well, what is, that's Marx, that's straight up Marxism. And so just in case you're still having a hard time believing that the father of modern American education was an outright Marxist, consider this. So at the, at the beginning of the Bolshevik Revolution, you really have three guys that are working together, you know, hand in hand. And that's Lenin, who's going to be the top dog. You have Stalin, who's going to be his successor, and a guy named Leon Trotsky, who's working with them. And the three, like you see pictures of those three guys, right? They're together. Well, when Stalin comes in, he's not a fan of Trotsky, and Trotsky has to leave Russia because everybody that Stalin doesn't like ends up, you know, becoming a pile of ash, and so Trotsky runs away and Stalin is telling the Russian people, you know, he's not faithful to communism. He wanted to restore capitalism to the USSR. And so this was like an offensive, you know, accusation. You know, Trotsky was a good communist. He was key and instrumental to the Bolshevik revolution under Lenin. Uh, he was a commissar under Lenin's communist government. And so because Stalin's throwing out these ideas, Trotsky wants to clear his name. And so he calls for an independent commission to declare him a good communist, right? And guess who leads it? Our boy. Our boy, John Dewey. In fact, it's called the Dewey Commission. It's not governmental. It's totally private. I think they did it in Mexico even. Um, and it was also that Trotsky could clear his name as a good communist. And so why would Dewey? Dewey volunteered for this. So modern day, if you call Dewey a Marxist, you get a lot of people who are in the Dewey fan club that come and say, no, he's not. <laughs> yeah. Sorry it's, for the. It's pretty tell. clear, though. Yeah, the guy is a Marxist. I mean, a Fabian socialist, however you want to clean it up. Uh, he is very much about a revolution in America to overturn our systems of economics for sure. And so just like all other faithful Marxists, let's talk about what he thinks about religion. Well, he's hostile to it. I mean, just flat out. So in a, a pretty scathing 1933 article on the topic of religion, he doesn't mince his words. Listen to direct quote. This is what he wrote. There is no God and there is no soul 
Hence, there is no need for the props of traditional religion. With dogma and creed excluded, then immutable truth is dead and buried. There is no room for fixed and natural law or permanent moral absolutes. How you feel about that quote? That's not good. <laughs> that is like bold. 1933. And guess where he wrote that? Probably Russia. Well, no, no. I'm not, I'm not saying was. where he was, like in his living room. He wrote it for Teachers Magazine. Good. So this is going out to teachers. You're getting the idea of what they're exporting into the world of education, right? There is no God. There is no soul. There are no absolutes. This is what he decides. He wants his primary messaging to be of this era. And so in 1934, he publishes a book. And like you'll, you'll start to hear echoes of what happened with the French. Because remember Rousseau? He hated religion with a passion, but he wanted. He knew that like you can't form a new state, you can't have a revolution without there being some kind of religion to grab hold out there for. And so he created the civil religion. Remember Rousseau, and he had a festival for the supreme being and all these other absurd things to replace Christianity with. Well, Dewey actually publishes a book called A Common Faith, and in it. He argued that traditional religion, you know, it's missed the mark because, and the direct quote, supernatural and otherworldly locus has obscured the re their real nature and has weakened their force. And so Dewey then says, you know, society should embrace a new system of belief that's based on nature and human reason and humanity and eliminate God and all the religious creeds altogether. And so he argued that you should still have liturgy in life. You, you still have all the religious elements of traditional religion. You just need to get rid of the God of those religions, right? So again, a civil religion, just like the French. I'm, I'm imagining that he's going, ooh, good one, Rousseau. I'll, I'll take that, yeah. you know? And he says, to those who have abandoned supernaturalism and who on that account are reproached by traditionalists for having turned their backs on everything religious, the book was an attempt to show such persons that they still have within their experience all the elements which give the religious attitude its values. So in other words, you could be an agnostic, you could be a humanist, you could be a, you know, an atheist and still have all the elements of religion, which is pretty spot on. Because there is no system of belief that does not require you to worship and to have religious you know, constructions around it and creeds and, and liturgies and all of that stuff. Every single worldview, whether it's religious or atheistic or whatever, they're all religious. And so he understood that. And so, and the conclusion, this is, I find this to be creepy, actually. And the conclusion of his book, My Pedagogic Creed, listen to what he says. I believe that in this way, the teacher is always the prophet of the true God and the usherer in of the true kingdom of God. Doesn't this sound like a cult? Yeah. It's weird. Uh, it's cultish. Like, we don't believe in God. There are, there's nothing supernatural. We're going to create it based on our own reason and our own whims and our own ideas. But you are a true prophet. And you're bringing in the true God. Like, go creepy. Like, uh, who's going to sign their kid up to send them to a school where the true prophets are going to teach them about the true God? You know, like, get out of here. Go away. Yeah, it's this weird mindset where he doesn't want God at all, but really wants God. He just wants his God. He, he, he wants to be God. Yeah. You know, he thinks that his ideas are worthy to be imposed on every human being and that compliance with it is the way to go, which 
anytime, anytime you have somebody who starts pushing for Marxism, that's ultimately what they say. And religion has to go because it teaches people that there is an authority higher than the greatest dictator and that you're, you have rights that come from God that no one can alienate. It, it's, the, it, it's poison to tyranny, right? Yeah. And so that's why every single communist dictator who's ever lived on planet Earth goes after religion first. And you see Dewey doing it. Mm. That's creepy. Warning bells. This is the father of modern American education. He is really a cult leader. Like you said, I, I don't want to dismiss that because if you took his quotes and we weren't thinking about education, we just described who Dewey was as a man. He did want power. He did want control. Yep. It's fascinating. And he had some pretty brilliant ideas about education. But when you look at what his ultimate aims are in terms of control and using education to reshape a society, pretty crazy to me. And so in 1933, he, he co-authors and signs something called the Humanist Manifesto. And so I think this is like his best attempt to put a creed like a catechism together for what life is like when you walk away from christianity because that's ultimately you know he wants to undermine that and and the manifesto reads like a denunciation of christianity so there's 15 pillars in this thing the first one is this religious humanist and i love that religious humanist because it is religious it really is religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created there is no God, in other words. Five, humanism asserts that the nature of the universe depicted by modern science makes unacceptable any supernatural or cosmic guarantees of human values. In other words, like <laughs> when we look at nature, it makes theism absolutely unacceptable. It has no place at the table of ideas. It is gone. Six, we are convinced that the time has passed for theism deism, modernism, and several varieties of new thought. In other words, because of nature and because of what we have found, these other belief systems are no longer acceptable. Like, who is this guy? I mean, these, I mean, it really, you get the, the smell of tyranny coming out of this. Eight, religious humanism considers the complete realization of human personality to be the end of man's life and seeks its development and fulfillment and the here and now there is no heaven the complete realization of the of all of humanity is here and now this is the explanation of the humanist social passion you want to know why we want to revolutionize the world it's because there is no heaven and we want our utopia now 15 last one Though we consider the religious forms and ideas of our fathers no longer adequate, the quest for the good life is still the central task for mankind. And then listen to this. Man is at last becoming aware that he alone is responsible for the realization of the world of his dreams, that he has within himself the power for its achievement. And so, like, he's writing this in 1933. Hitler's on the rise. You're going to see outrageous, you know, the technologies and everything else that humanity develops are going to be used for what? Evil. Not a utopia. <laughs> I mean, it leaves the world in a smoking pile of ruins. I mean, somebody's utopia. Maybe, yeah. The rich, the rich guy at the top who's living in yeah. the palace starving everyone else. Yeah, maybe, maybe his utopia. So, and of course, guess who Dewey is, is influenced by? Not shocking. Our boy Darwin, right? So Dewey's actually born in the year that Darwin published on The Origin of Species. 
But he's often credited. Remember, he's also a philosopher. He's credited with being the first philosopher to incorporate Darwin's theory into a philosophic framework. And so in his essay, The Influence of Darwinism on Philosophy, he wrote that Darwinism, quote, was bound to transform the logic of knowledge and hence the treatment of morals, politics, and religion. And so he writes, Philosophy forswears inquiry after absolute origins and absolute finalities. I'm going to explain this in a minute. I know that just went, wait, what? (laughs) Nature has no end, no aim, and no purpose. There is change only, not advancement toward a goal. So what is he saying? What does that mean? In other words, let me, let me just sit. I'm going to put it in my words. If our beginnings have no great moment of meeting, there's, there's, there's no special creation. There's no breath of God into the nostrils of Adam. There's no beginning that, and that gives us some inherent dignity, right? It's just change that goes back. There's nothing meaningful at our beginning. There's no commissioning that says, this is why you're created. Here's your purpose. Here's your mission. That, that none of that exists. And our end also has no meaning because there's not going to be any great meeting at the pearly gates. There's no hope of heaven. There's no fear of hell. There's none of that exists. Then have the courage to to admit that there is no divine significance to all the days in between. I mean, that's, that's what he's saying here. And if it's just a chaotic bunch of happenings with no genuine significance beyond, you know, this natural realm, well, if that's true, it upends two millennia of, and not just Judeo-Christian philosophy, but it, it upends the Romans and it upends the Greeks because all of those guys viewed wisdom and virtue as being the pursuit of some fixed and eternal truth. It was out there and we have to go discover it. And what Dewey is saying is you can't pursue it because it's constantly changing and evolving. And therefore, the only thing that ethics can do is respond to changing situations. And so he embraces a term situational ethics rather than absolute morals. And so you you follow, right? You follow what's happening. We remember our founding God. I mean, he snickers at the idea. Mm. The, the notion of absolutes, no, no, no. It's all situational, constantly changing. We never know where we're standing. Individual rights, nope, not a fan of those either limited government. He wants to unleash the government. Like everything about who we were as a nation, this guy's like revolution that it's coming. Right. And so, and he, he attempts this great mind meld of arguing that real individualism requires the implementation of socialism. So try to get there if you will. Like, I mean, I guess if you're selfish and you don't want to work and you want to make like, it's all selfish, Mm -hmm. maybe that kind of an individualism, but certainly not individual rights. Listen to this. He says, individualism and socialism are one. And he wholeheartedly believed that America was going to be remade into a Marxist society. He says this. He says, we are in for some kind of socialism. Call it whatever name we please. And no matter what it will be called, when it's realized, economic determinism is now a fact, not a theory. So free markets, they're done. It's a fact. Determinism is a guarantee now. We've got the helm of this country. We will bring it about. He doesn't seem wrong. I mean, he's arrogant and he's prideful and he's crazy in some ways, but he played the game right in a sense. Yeah, he won. Yeah, he definitely won. And you can see our, our country's moving in the trajectory that he wanted. Mm. That, that's undeniable. I can't, I can't imagine either side of the political spectrum would deny that. Like, he won. It was slower than he wanted, but yeah, true. got there. 
True. So then you, let's get to one of his friends. And, and I'm, I'm bringing this guy up partly just because it shows the arrogance of this club of people and some of the things that they were saying. So Charles Francis Potter, he's a famous liberal theologian. So here's another shout out to last week's episode. Here's a famous liberal theologian, Unitarian pastor. He graduates from, from Newton Theological Institution, another bastion of liberal theology. And so he becomes the founder of the first humanist society of New York. And John Dewey and Julian Huxley, two very big names in American history, serve on the board of directors. And so he's a huge admirer of John Dewey and all of the work that he's doing in education. And, and he writes, I'm just going to read two quotes of his because they're interesting. You know, he says, by freeing religion of supernaturalism, in other words, there's no God interacting, there's no miracles, there's no resurrection, there's no virgin birth, there's nothing supernatural. Oh, it will release tremendous reserves of hitherto thwarted power. Man has waited too long for God to do what man ought to do for himself and is fully capable of doing. Like, can't you just hear the echo of the serpent in this language? Yeah. Like, you know, God, God's keeping you back. Let him go, go conquer, go, go achieve what he's been holding you back from. And then the far more uh, gross quote um, that he's actually more famous for, but he's, he's running around in Dewey circles. He's looking at everything that's going on in education, and he offers this gloat. He says, education is thus a most powerful ally of humanism. And every public school is a school of humanism. He's not wrong, but now listen to where he goes. What can theistic Sunday schools, meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children, do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching? Do you see what we're up against here? I mean, they see the target. They see the goal. They're implementing a campaign to systematically wreck theistic education in America. That is their target. They want to radically transform this country from what it is, and they know that the way to it is to wreck the faith. Mm. And they recognize if we take the schools, the church won't be able to stand against us. And they say it out loud. Yeah, it's not even secret. So remember, going back, you remember the promises of Horace Mann, like the, the one who brought the common school movement in public schools, and oh, we governments would never exploit government-led education systems. How's that working out for you, Horace? Schools, public schools are going to have rigorous Bible instruction like the Prussian schools, and you know, they're going to yield outstanding educational results like the Prussians for the advancement of Christendom. Like, how do those promises look now? Like, you allowed the Leviathan to come out without any, any restrictions, no restraints, and now the Leviathan is on a mission. And it's being steered and directed by people that are absolutely hostile to the principles of America's founding. And it didn't take that long. Did not. Church fell asleep for a couple of decades and game over. Yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty wild. So one more guy, and then we're going to be done with this episode. Another one of Dewey's buddies. Uh, this is George S. Counts, who, if you thought Dewey was a strong cup of coffee, 
<laughs> this guy is going to be a little bit stronger. He comes to Columbia's Teachers College in 1927. So he and Dewey overlap for a few years. He's going to stay there till 1956. And so if you remember, Dewey leads the largest teachers union, the National Education Association, uh, honorary lifetime president. George Counts is going to be the leader of the second largest teachers union, the American Federation of Teachers from 1939 to 1942. So you get the idea. Like these are not small voices. Yeah. These are the big dogs on the block and shaping education in this. And so to date, this guy, George Counts, is considered the father of social reconstruction. Just consider that title. What does that mean? We are going to reconstruct the nation. He's the father of social reconstruction movement and education. And so like Dewey, he goes to Russia. Like where else? Where better to learn? So many field trips to Russia. <laughs> there, during this era, so many field trips to Russia. So he goes to Russia to learn from the communists. He really liked it. In fact, he goes there multiple times, taking at least three trips to the Soviet Union, starts writing books about Soviet education. He's, he read the communist newspaper Pravda every day. And so he wrote a couple of books about them. And when he returned, listen to what he says. Like I just, just hear, because it's wild to me that this is happening in America. He says, man, the world is full of social experimentation. There is one experiment, however, that dwarfs all others, so bold indeed in its details and its program that few can contemplate it without emotion. Soviet Russia is endeavoring with all the resources at her command to bring the economic order under measure of rational control. She issues to the Western nations and particularly to the United States a challenge, perhaps one of the greatest challenges of history. She issues it not through the Communist International nor through the Red Army, but through her state planning commission and her system of public education. In other words, if you want to be as glorious as the Soviet Union, it's going to come through the system of public education. And we, too, can participate in this great revolution that's the greatest thing the world has ever seen. I can't talk about it without getting emotional. <laughs> you get the idea of how fervently these guys are pushing this stuff, right? And so what makes Counts even more radical than Dewey is Dewey is like, yeah, we need to use the schools. We need to use the schools to bring about a new education. And Counts is like, we need to train up activists. We need to radically transform society by making our students activists. And so he declares the schools must, quote, become less frightened than it is today at the boogies, like boogeyman of imposition and indoctrination. Like, who cares if they accuse you of indoctrinating kids is what he's saying. The schools should be focusing on, quote, shaping attitudes and tastes and even imposing their ideas. He writes a, a pamphlet called Dare the School to Build a New Social Order. And in it, he's all about indoctrinating students. So he, he's, he says, you know, you will say, no doubt, that I'm flirting with the idea of indoctrination. My answer, again, is in the affirmative. Hmm. You accuse me of indoctrination? Good. You're absolutely right. That's exactly what I'm doing. He goes on and he says, only the most stupid and unenterprising can fail to perceive the promise of power which the school holds out to those who would organize its curriculum. Brilliant. Evil? but brilliant. You don't understand the power of those that control the schools. 
We need to make them activists. And so he says, those of us who are interested in making the educational profession function adequately and realizing a new American society equal to the modern economic and cultural opportunities, we must appreciate the necessity for breaking the present lockstep and teacher training. We need to make them Marxist, in other words. And so I'm going to read just a sampling of other quotes are you, are you quoted out yet? No, no, I think you should keep going. Okay. <laughs> All right. So here we got a sampling of quotes that are coming from Columbia's teacher college professors. Ready? The day of individualism in the production and distribution of goods is gone. Oh, that's nice. The times are literally crying for a new vision of American destiny. The teaching profession, or at least its progressive elements, should eagerly grasp the opportunity which fates have placed in their hands. Such a vision of what America might become in the industrial age, I would introduce into our schools as the supreme imposition. Here's another one. The growth of science and technology has carried us into a new age where ignorance must be replaced by knowledge. Here the the very anti-Christian bias that's that's being implied here. The growth of science and technology has carried us into a new age where ignorance must be replaced by knowledge. Competition, capitalism, by cooperation, socialism, trust in providence, so faith in God, by careful planning, and private capitalism by some form of socialized economy. So they're just open Marxists. The objection is, of course, raised at once. I love this one. (laughs) The objection, of course, is raised at once that a planned, coordinated, and socialized economy managed in the interest of the people would involve severe restrictions on personal freedom. Well, undoubtedly, in such an economy, the individual would not be permitted to do many things that he has customarily done in the past. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to crush the individual rights. You're going to lose a lot of your personal freedoms. You know, we're getting rid of God. We don't agree on absolutes. We're, we're going to unleash the government. Revolutionary. Mm. No shots fired, but revolutionary. And so, incredibly, most of the radicals who were vehemently calling for Marxist revolution in America actually later withdraw their support for the Soviet Union. Remember how they all travel over there and they're like, this is the promised land. (laughs) Well, when they find out that there's, you know, 20 some odd million people killed under Lenin and Stalin. It's hard to be supportive. Yeah, I mean, that colors their impression of it. So, I mean, they they all start walking it back. You know, I don't support the slaughtering of millions. (laughs) So, anyway... Nevertheless, hundreds of these Columbia Teachers College graduates go on to lead the nation's schools and the subsequent teachers' colleges and departments that are starting to emerge throughout the nation. And still, we haven't gotten to probably the most radical elements of Columbia University that come in the 1930s. And so in 1923, there's a group of like radical thinkers who found the openly Marxist institution for social research in Frankfurt, Germany. Well, in 1933, Hitler's starting to threaten the Jewish people and this group of professors and thinkers um, are largely Jewish. And so they're forced to flee from Germany and Columbia's like, oh, they send an invitation. Like, we would love to have you here. And so they come and they found another school inside of Columbia that's going to be called the Frankfurt School. And their legacy, these guys, 
has generated decades of political terrorism here inside the borders of America. A lot of people may not know this. This might come as a shock, but they produced a lot of political terrorism and their teachings have continued to impact American society today in undeniable ways. When we start talking about what they taught, you'll be able to recognize it immediately and how it's taken total control of virtually every political topic in America today. And so we will learn more about the legacy of the Frankfurt School next time on the Out of Water Podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. Music for this episode included Epic Hero and the Inspiration by Keys of Moon, Patriotic Feelings, and Reporting from the Scene by Max Go Music, and Permafrost by Scott Buckley. You can learn more about the Out of Water Podcast and Rio Vista Church at our website, riovistachurch.com.